Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pappas, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Sarah Smith, assistant professor of indigenous race and ethnic studies at the University of Oregon. They specialize in 20th and 21st century U.S. black literatures, radical protest literatures of the U.S., black studies, critical race theories, affect theory, gender and sexuality, histories of science and medicine, and health humanities. Prior to coming to the University of Oregon in fall 2023, Smith taught courses like Black Life and the Human Body, who is an African-American, U.S. Afro-Latinx literatures, and writing trauma while a Ph.D. student at Yale University, where they were a 2021 Frank, Frankie? Frankie. Frankie graduate fellow. Smith was also a 2022-23 John Hope Franklin dissertation fellow awarded by the American Philosophical Society. They've worked for social justice-oriented educational organizations, including the California Conference for Equality and Justice and the Yale Prison Education Initiative. Smith's book project, Vivified Viscerality, Bioscience and the Black Interior in U.S. Black Literature and Sculpture, demonstrates how and why U.S. Black artists use biology to, to depict racialized life. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on the show, and welcome to the University of Oregon. Thank you so much for having me. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to study what you study. Sure. Uh, so I'm originally from Southern California. I split my time between Long Beach and Cerritos, California, um, and loved being there. It was a very multicultural environment. Um, I went to a high school that was predominantly Asian and Asian American, and then wanted to go to a liberal arts college for my undergraduate career and couldn't afford it. So I ended up going to a local school, California State University, Long Beach, um, predominantly Latinx, Hispanic serving institution, and had an amazing educational experience there. I majored in English literature and creative writing and minored in psychology and felt like, you know, I really enjoy this. I wanna keep doing research, keep doing writing, keep reading and talking to folks about my ideas. And so I participated in a pro program called the Institute for Recruitment of Teachers. Um, which helped me apply to graduate programs. And from there, I went to do my graduate work at Yale in a joint PhD program in African-American studies and English and really enjoyed that experience. So yeah, that's my educational background. Um, <laughs> I came to study what I study, which is kind of at the intersection between black literary studies and the health humanities. Um, in a couple different ways. I have an official answer and an unofficial answer. Okay. So I'll give you both. The official answer is that when I was an undergraduate, I uh, was doing reading in my courses and I kept seeing African-American people's bodies in the text, whether they were disabled or just references to the body. And I asked my advisor at the time why there were so many bodies in these texts. And he, instead of making up an answer, just told me he didn't know. And that question, that answer really propelled me onto my journey of trying to find out why. And since I've learned that there are many other scholars who are thinking about these ideas, but um, it was just really exciting for me to know that there was an area of research that not many people had been thinking about, specifically thinking about the body from a biological perspective um, and also thinking about race. So that's the official answer. The unofficial answer is that I'm the child of chronically ill and disabled parents. And uh, my dad has sickle cell anemia and my mom has lupus. And I spent a lot of time in medical settings. So I spent a lot of time thinking about sickness and care and health and all of those things. And I found as I continued my studies that that just kept coming up, so. Can you say a little bit more about, I mean, you just uh, gave the unofficial answer yes. and then the official answer. Mm -hmm. So say a little bit more about and, and I mean this more in the official sense, why does it make sense for a black scholar to bring together black literature 
and health humanities. Why is that a smart thing to do? Yeah, that's a smart thing to do because we know that there are huge disparities in how black people and non-black people are treated in healthcare settings, um, their access to healthcare, the quality of care that they receive. And so I think it's really important when we're thinking about um, that quality of care to recognize that black people have a say in their care. They, it's not just that they're the recipients of um, unequal treatment or certain environments that cause certain health conditions, but they also have a, a voice and that they represent their health in all kinds of different ways. And so a black literature scholar can uniquely look at the art that they're producing, black people are producing and say, okay, what does health mean to these novelists and these poets? And how are they arguing for well-being, black well-being in those texts? So I think it's really important to, uh, in the world that we live in where not everyone has the same access to a quality of life that we remember that those populations who are being, um, who you know have challenges in accessing um, what other people can access, they have a say. So I know, I mean, I, m I mentioned it in passing in the intro, but I know from reading about your work that you have a particular interest in interiority, but not the way that most literary scholars are interested in interiority. So tell us how you're interested in it and why it's different and why what you do is important to do. Sure, uh, so most uh, literary critics, American literary critics, I work on the 20th century predominantly, um, are thinking about interiority as psychology or emotion. Um, that's what the scholarship is, and rightfully so, especially when it comes to African-American literature. They're attempting to avoid the racist idea that um, race is biological, and so they focus on other forms of interiority, psychology and emotion. I'm focusing on biology, um, physiology, anatomy, thinking specifically about how race is lived. How does racialization affect bodily processes? Um, and how do artists, writers and visual artists represent that experience of living black life? Um, yeah. So tell us now uh, uh, about the sort of project of your book, Vivified Viscerality, Bioscience and the Black Interior in U.S. Black Literature and Sculpture. First, tell us first about that, that the front part of the title, <laughs> Vivified Viscerality. Sure. Uh, so I chose the beginning part of the title because I really wanted to emphasize that what the writers and artists that I'm looking at are doing is making alive internal processes. So they're taking you inside and trying to show you what it means to live in a live in the present in a black body. Um, and so vivified because they're, the artists are making it interesting and making it dynamic for a reader or a viewer. And viscerality because the characters and the audience are experiencing those bodies in certain ways that I want them to pay attention to. So that's where the title came from. The project itself looks at a series of novels and poetry, as well as a series of sculptures by Doreen Lynette Garner, who also goes by the name King Cobra. Um, and across the text, I'm asking why does biology, why does science and medicine show up in these texts? 
whether that's the visual art or the literature, and trying to find out how the artists manipulate their representations of science and medicine to serve their own purposes. And the artists that I'm looking at are specifically trying to expose anti-blackness and uh, teach about how black people navigate those conditions. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited about the project. The structure is literary chapters with interludes about the sculptures. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to include both because I felt like I was having a hard time finding the language to describe what the literary writers were doing at the beginning of the project. And so I turned to Cobra's work and said, okay, if I can describe how she's um, visually representing biological black bodies, then maybe I can find better ways to describe um, what's happening in the literature. She, Cobra, works in silicone and beads and Swarovski crystals and mica flakes and found materials and her work is just really visceral in that way and I learned a lot from really sitting with her work. Um, I've had the chance to be in one of her performance art pieces. She's a performance artist, a tattoo artist, a sculptor, trained in glass blowing and um, other mediums. And she's, it's been remarkable to be able to engage with her work. And people can go to the website and actually watch a really interesting interview that was done with her by Art for Art 21. Yes. Um, so say, tell me a couple of the uh, literary writers who you look at. Sure, so um, my favorite to talk about is uh, an author named William Attaway. Um, he was an artist in many different mediums. He co-wrote the Banana Boat uh, Deo song. <laughs> so he was, you know, not just a writer, but not just a literary writer, but also wrote songs and TV episodes. But um, his book from 1941 called Blood on the Forge, which is about three black sharecroppers um, who moved from Kentucky to work in a Pennsylvania steel mill in 1919. And it's all about their experiences um, moving from one exploitative environment to a totally new industrial capitalist exploitative environment and trying to understand how race and racism continue to follow them in that new environment, as well as how white ethnic workers, Mexican-American sex workers, and how these black workers are all trying to understand the racial um, structure. So the reason I'm looking at that text is because uh, the autonomic bodily processes um, that Attaway foregrounds like fight or flight reflexes, nausea, vomiting, shivering, um, really appear in so many different places that I wanted to know why. And this text is the one that actually started me on this project. Mm. And uh, what I'm arguing about it is that these ways of experiencing your internal body are a way of understanding the environment that you're in and communicating with other people about what you're learning in that environment. So even though um, there may not be conscious recognition of the exploitative state or of the continuation of anti-black racism in a new location. There is a recognition that, that the characters are under threat. And so for me, it was really important to recognize that the body has knowledge and that the characters are communicating with each other via their bodily processes. Like one character will see another character's pupils dilate and then recognize that the mill is actually a really dangerous place to work or um, there are many examples, but that's one example of a literary text. I also look at Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, and think about brain damage, or Jane Cortez's poetry collection, Fire Spitter, and nastiness, and spit, and uh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's completely fascinating, completely <laughs> fascinating. Um, thanks for the uh, alerting me to the book. I've never heard of that book, and it sounds completely fascinating. I'm also a scholar of 20th century literature. Mm. 
Um, I, as I mentioned, you've worked with social, uh, several social service organizations, social justice organizations that are educational. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of the California Conference for Equality and what you did there? Sure. Uh, so I really enjoyed working with the California Conference for Equality and Justice. I worked for them during my year off between undergraduate and graduate education. And there I led conversations with high schoolers and middle schoolers about different forms of oppression, racism, classism, sexism, ableism, um, ageism, all kinds of forms of oppression and how they were impacting the students' lives. Um, but what was really exciting about that work was not just the kind of um, revelatory project for students of learning about these uh, systems, but also teaching them about the power and privilege that some of them have and also what it means to advocate for each other inside their school settings and outside of the school setting. Um, so we would have weekend camps where we took students away from their school settings to do this um, kind of deep work and then other times we would work in schools with regular programming and I loved it. <laughs> and so when you were at Yale, you participated in Yale's prison education initiative. So tell us a little bit about that initiative and, and what you did there. Sure, so the Yale Prison Education Initiative is a program that offers education to incarcerated students. They take Yale professors, they take Yale resources and um, support and offer courses, like normal semester-long courses in the prisons. Um, and I, while I was there, I helped in an administrative capacity. So while I have had really wanted to teach in the prisons, um, at the time COVID hit and I couldn't go into the prison. So I worked in an administrative capacity as a degree coordinator fellow. So I helped to build out their associate's degree. Um, and that is a program that they developed with the University of New Haven. So um, I, created, uh, mocked up the kind of degree progression process for students and wrote an advising proposal that helped secure a $1.5 million grant to support the degree. I, um, you know, worked on many different aspects of figuring out how to get students through an associate's degree program uh, and really loved it. And so now the associate's degree is happening. I'm very excited to see. Are you aware of the University of Oregon's prison education program? I am, and I'm excited to get involved. Good. It's an amazing program. Mm -hmm. um, so, in addition to being a scholar and a social activist, you are also a teacher. So let's talk a little bit about the teaching that you've done across your career so far. So while at Yale, you taught writing trauma, not a normal class, because you, you got to teach it with Roxanne, Roxanne Gay, who was at Yale as a visiting professor. So talk a little bit about that class, and also what was it like to collaborate with a famous writer? <laughs> For a, for a literary yes. scholar. You know. Yeah, it was great. It was challenging, but great in that uh, I learned a lot from Roxanne about how to guide students through um, really difficult material and also while holding a high standard for creative production. So it was a creative writing course um, and we co-taught it, which meant that Roxanne gave her generous wisdom and feedback and I listened <laughs> and supported by giving students my time and support in, in my own way. Um, and so, yeah, the whole term we talked about how we define trauma, the complications of representing trauma, what it might mean to expose other people to the trauma that you've encountered, and really learning how to have those conversations with students as they're being vulnerable to share their work um, and being vulnerable about their lives was a 
really big learning experience for me. And mm. I loved it. I loved it, um, but it was hard. It was hard for me to be in the right mindset to be able to come to class and remember my goals, my teaching goals. Um, yeah. Do you have an interest in doing more teaching and creative writing? Maybe, if they'd let me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this fall, this first fall at U of O, you've been teaching black life and the human body. So tell us about that class, what's going on in there. Sure, so really that class is looking at what it means to be human for the black person. Um, so I'm thinking about how for African-American activists for many, many years, claims to humanity have been the way to resist racism, um, saying no, we are not, resisting the idea that we're property, resisting the idea that we're animals, by saying we are human, we are just as much Western man as anyone else. But scholars recently have been uh, considering whether or not that claim actually results in freedom and justice for all people, whether aspiring to Western manhood really does um, give us access to the full range of human experiences. And so the class itself is trying to explore what human means for these black writers at different moments in history. So we start from the 1840s and go all the way up to the 1980s and we're thinking about how creative writers are representing their bodies and representing their humanity, how they're in dialogue with each other, how they're vis revisiting some of the same themes, um, but also how they change over time. So for example, this past week we were doing a week on confinement and surveillance and we were reading an excerpt from Asada Shakur's autobiography, along with uh, Franz Fanon's The Lived Experience of the Black Man, and paired that with surveillance studies work by Simone Brown and Dorothy Roberts. And we were really thinking about what kinds of confinement do black people experience, what kinds of surveillance, and how do these forms of confinement and surveillance affect the entire population, not just black people. Um, and so yeah, students seem to really enjoy it, but. It's been a fun class to teach, and it came out of my dissertation research. Mm. So um, you will, next term, teach a course called Black Health and Healing. What's going to happen in there? Yeah, so this class called Black Health and Social Healing will be an opportunity to think about what it means to be healthy in a world that is has racism, sexism, ableism, fat phobia, that's plagued by these um, forms of oppression and it's looking at how people who are um, oppressed under these you know forces how they pursue health and well-being and also how those forces impact their health possibilities and health outcomes um, so again we're pairing as I do in all of my courses pairing literature with um, secondary source material, historical and sociological and public health related uh, secondary source material. So we'll be looking at texts like Audre Lorde's The Cancer Journals or um, Tony Kidbambara's The Salt Eaters and thinking about that along with Charla Fett's Working Cures about the health circumstances and health communities on the plantation or Jim Down's Sick from Freedom which is about uh, the experiences of emancipated slaves in the post-reconstruction um, period, how they were experiencing that level of freedom and the challenges to their health in uh, doing that. So I'm really excited for the course. It'll be the first time I've taught it, but it's, um, 
a great opportunity to really dig into health humanities and expose students to how literature relates to the health humanities. So let me ask you a little bit more about the challenges of being someone who's trained as a literary scholar, who's become interested in health humanities, bioscience, anatomy, biology. Mm -hmm. So what have you had to do in order to get yourself able to do the kind of interdisciplinary work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, it's meant really exposing myself to a lot of different um, intellectual communities. At Yale, I was not only in formally in two departments, but I spent a lot of time with women's gender and sexuality studies and a lot of time with the history of science and medicine program. Um, so that meant attending talks, taking courses, uh, talking to faculty, and what it'll mean now that I'm in this position is continuing to be involved with academic associations and journals and what have you. Um, but it's meant a lot of reading around, and it has also meant learning new ways of presenting that research. So I was recently editing an article that included a lot of um, history, historic material about uh, the black health, I mean, the black hospital movement, and um, it also included information from psychology and cognitive science. So I had to learn how to write all of those things together with my close reading. And it's a process because not, not many people know how to receive that work, but I'm learning with each new day how to present it in a way that's legible to various uh, audiences. And so far people have been excited about it, but I'm blazing a little, my own little trail. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what attracted you to the University of Oregon? Oh, yes. Well, I, many things attracted me to being here, but really when I visited, it was the people, the community that I found in the indigenous race and ethnic studies, the other faculty, the students, um, were just so kind and generous and also thoughtful in the ways they engaged my work. They were able to bring out ideas that I'd had, um, really augment them and encourage me about them. And I found that not just in IRIS, but also in, I have friends in the linguistics department or in women's gender and sexuality studies who have all come around me to support the very interdisciplinary work that I'm doing and that felt really good. So that really made me so excited about the possibility of coming here and I'm glad I was able to. Um, I'm also just really excited to be involved with, uh, there's, I'm interested in museum studies mm. too. Mm. So a lot of work, some of the work that I've done has been about representations of the body in museum settings. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited that there are two museums here, you know, that I could do work with and there are other folks who are interested in um, teaching courses about museums and thinking critically about museums. So that's another reason why mm. Oregon was a great so, choice. Um, we've already talked about the, sort of some of the social justice work that you've done in the past. Do you have any thoughts about pursuing that work in our community? Oh yeah, well, first my goal, my task for myself is to really learn more about Eugene, about the University of Oregon, about who's here and what it means for the students and the local community to be here. So I'm in a phase of learning first before trying to offer any services, but I am really excited that there is the UO Prison Education program and that there's um, many people who seem to care about life in Oregon and, and how the university is relating to the local community. So I'm excited to get involved. I don't know yet where exactly that will be, <laughs> but I, I'm excited about it. And I'm 
particularly excited to get involved with black community here on mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. So the Black Cultural Center, the Black Strategies Group, um, I'm really excited to find out what work they're doing to serve black students because that's one of my passions. Are any of the courses that you're teaching going to be cross-listed in black studies? Are you going to teach for the black studies program? Yes, yes. So they are cross-listed. Well, they are. They do count towards the black studies um, program and I will be teaching in it. Good. So um, you've told us about the dissertation project that you are working on to turn it into a book. What do you think you're going to pursue when that's behind you? Mm. I have this idea to uh, write a book on black women's health cultures. So uh, some of the work that I mentioned, uh, Audre Lorde's Cancer Journals and Tony K. Limbar's Assault Eaters, thinking about the 80s and 90s as a moment when a lot of black women were thinking about their health and really advocating for a more just society around health issues. So there's this book called The Black Women's Health Book that um, was published in the early 90s and it's kind of been a guide for me in this way to ask how are black women defining their health at this moment and what can we learn and why is literature, why is poetry, why is short fiction, why is um, creative nonfiction an important venue for communicating demands about health and demands about um, how we can lead, lead more just lives. Are there other scholars who are working at this intersection that you're working at now? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, in terms of the the second book project or the... Just, just in, general, in general, the work that you do. <laughs> yes, there are. There are some uh, amazing scholars. I consider myself to be learning from and in conversation with people like Zakia Iman Jackson, whose book um, On Becoming Human is... It, an amazing text about the human and about black people's relationships to humanity. Um, I consider myself in conversation with Sylvia Winter um, and Catherine McKittrick. She just recently published a book called Dear Science and Other Stories, which is thinking about black studies relationship to science and the problems of science for black people. Um, and so these, all of these folks are thinking about how we put blackness and science and medicine together. Um, in terms of health, there are many scholars who have done work in the history, history field on black people's relationship, like Alondra Nelson's Body and Soul, or um, uh, The Protest Psychosis, which I'm forgetting, I think it's Jonathan Metzl's um, book, but there are many thinkers who have written historical texts, but not as many who've thought about the cultural representations mm -hmm. of health. And so that's what I'm hoping to offer is a closer look at how black writers are and black artists are thinking about their health. Fascinating. So we just have a couple of seconds left. So this will be my last question. Uh, I hope it's not unfair. You've, you study a lot of literary texts that are non-canonical, non-canonical. Tell us one that you would really recommend that everyone should read that, that they are likely to have not read. Ooh. Anyone. It doesn't have to be your favorite one, just one of them that you just think that's a book that everybody should read. Um, I really think the Attaway book that I mentioned before is a book that people don't often come across that I think everyone should read. I think it really um, shares a lot of the kind of issues that we're dealing with in the contemporary moment, whether that's about labor, politics, or about the environment, or about um, migration, or any of those things. And he does it in such a beautiful and also terrible way. And I think it's it was considered one of the, um, uh, like Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison all really praised the book, mm. um, but it's not really remembered in general 
you know, education. So I would recommend that people read it. It's called Blood on the Forge by William Attaway from 1941. Thank you, Sarah Smith, for speaking with us today. Thank you for this really interesting conversation, for your fascinating work. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It has. <laughs> I've been speaking with Sarah Smith, Assistant Professor of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.